0: Comment and share. Good morning, everyone. It's the one and only V, the grill economist, and uh, CJ is not with us right now because he is traveling. But we have the man of the hour. You've been waiting for him all week. It's the one and only London Paul over at thesirioustreport.com. And, folks, if you haven't gotten a chance to go to the Serious Report and subscribe, 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 subscribe to the special membership service that they have over there where you get daily briefings from london paul delivered directly to you with full access you need to do that you're going to get the play-by-play of the entire geopolitical spectrum check it out the and with that being said london paul how are you sir
1: good morning big yeah i'm very well and yourself
0: Oh, not bad, Paul. I'm, you know, I'm feeling kind of good. Uh, you know, I have three cups of dark roast in me. So I so I, I, I guess, I guess everything's okay in the world now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, so many things going on, Paul. The drama continues. The soap opera. The the shenanigans. Uh, I guess we can start off with the nonsense that is happening here in the states. Um, the U.S. political shenanigans. Um. <laughs> So many things are coming out. The Bruce Orr testimony, uh, this whole Russian dossier thing is going down in flames. It's been revealed that uh, the, uh, Michael Cohen's law- lawyer, uh, Lanny Davis, has come out and said, yeah, he's the uh, source uh, for this uh, entire dossier nonsense. And it looks like, again, it's going down in flames, but it, it also seems as if Mueller's uh, investigation continues unabated. What's your opinion on this, and when do you think this whole shenanigans will just wrap up?
1: Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. It's one of those things it will just – I think it's just going to drag on and on. I I don't see it ending before the midterms. I I think a lot hinges on the midterms. I think we've obviously discussed this before, but principally if Trump gets some runaway victory, um, then I suspect – there'll be things implemented after the midterms. I don't see a lot happening beforehand because it's not politically expedient to start trying to say, well, actually, I think we need to fire Mueller or let's fire Sessions or let's fire someone or anyone because it'll just cause a political shitstorm and there's no other word for it. So it's in Trump's best interest to play it pretty low key. Yes, of course, there's going to be developments unfolding and, of course, in any political election, they'll always be jostling on both sides. The Democrats will be seeking any opportunity to try and, in some way, even if it's indirectly, disc, um, you know, discredit Trump. And in the process, of course, you know, the Trump administration is going to do everything it can to, uh, to cement its current position. Um electorally so they will do everything in the process to try and you know make sure they do get a landslide victory because it will give them the mandate to uh then i think start to implement a lot of things people keep anticipating for many months will come to fruition now that doesn't mean you know the day after the midterms and all things being equal trump achieves his objectives that then we're going to see Um, you know, all the things like all this much vaunted mass arrest and all these kind of things happening, which everyone keeps anticipating and has spent months constantly going on about it. And and I've always said, you know, honestly, frankly, I'm not interested at the moment. It will happen when it happens and it will happen at at an appointed time, which is, well, all things being equal, hopefully in the best interest of the American people and the best interest of Trump in the process. But, it doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight, and and at the moment, I think there's way too much distraction. That you know, people are picking up on little small events, trying to you know, it's ramming a square peg into a round hole to try and convince themselves and everybody else that it means something. And it, in all reality, it probably doesn't. But it doesn't detract from the fact there is a, a you know, in the in the long term, there will be, you know. Well, hopefully, as long as Trump wins the midterms, I think if he doesn't, and I don't suspect there's any reason he will uh, not achieve those objectives. The only thing, as we've said, is there's a huge economic downturn. That I think I think it would particularly put is, is election plans in jeopardy. I'm not envisaging that is a likelihood. There is a risk of it and a possibility. But I think there's also always that risk that, well, you know, something to do with US foreign policy could create some major problems and i guess we can start and talk about a few of those things you know during the course of today but i think in general that poses a risk but in essence we've said many times unfortunately the neocon influences hijacked u.s foreign policy but they ironically of course need to keep the trump bandwagon going irrespective so it's a kind of marriage of Convenience from their perspective. And to some extent, for now, Trump's largely can't be seen to do anything that opposes them, whether he wants to or doesn't. And that doesn't, that may seem like a bit of a loaded comment. But if you look at any particular move, we know for a long time, for example, Trump said, Look, I want to get out of Syria. And we know what happened a matter of weeks after he said he wanted to leave uh, Syria. We had the false flag chemical weapon attack in Douma, which justified the reason why the U.S. needs to stay there, to fight its phony war on Daesh, which is just an excuse to be there. Now, the problem is, as well, is if Trump was to say, well, I want to do, you know, I want to you know, walk out of Syria now, it could be perceived by people in the U.S. to be a weak move. And Trump can't be seen to make any moves that would you know, put him in the light of of you know, looking weak or ineffectual because that may influence the election. So the status quo is likely to be maintained. Of course, we can talk a bit about Syria in a moment because we've got the spectre of, unsurprisingly, yet another false flag chemical weapons attack, and we, we can talk about that in some detail shortly. But, and of course, as you always get with all elections, I mean we've experienced it before, whether it's the UK, the US, or anywhere else. There's all this shenanigans, nonsense going on, and. And, and it's just going to run and run and run. A lot of it's just hot air and irrelevant. The, the important relevance is that from the Trump administration's perspective, they need to stay focused on the important things and ensure they get through the midterms, which gives them then the mandate to go on in the next two years and implement a whole bunch of reforms, hopefully, and also in the process. Maybe then there's the, the possibility to change the emphasis of foreign policy where Trump can start to say things that he should be saying, although it's questionable whether he can even do that. And also in the process, then we may start to see some moves where, you know, and it comes back to the point, and I, I said this when you were away, Vita, uh, with CJ, but, you know, I don't care whether people think what side of the fence people imagine Sessions is on, and we can deliberate that for the next five years it's irrelevant what is relevant what is what is sessions actually going to do he now has a mandate at some point that he's going to have to start to do the things that he's failed to do so far Mm -hmm. and if he doesn't do it then he's going to get fired and then that will then make then that raises the specter of well what 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 is you know what is sessions doing there what is his really ulterior motive he's going to have to start doing the the very awkward, unpleasant things he seems to have so far decided not to tackle, and there could be many reasons why he's done that. But ultimately, I'm not going to get drawn into a debate about, you know, Trump. You know, uh, sorry that uh, Sessions is on the good side of the fence. No, he's not. It's irrelevant. His actions will speak far louder than words, and he's running on empty if he doesn't start to implement mm-hmm. things. And I think if we get to the midterms, and all things being equal, Trump, you know, sails through them. I don't, and Sessions continues to have done nothing. I I think Sessions days are numbered. Yeah. As well as maybe other people in the administration and maybe that's, you know, part of the move. And to be honest, if Sessions does do the things we want him to do and expect him to do, then that's a completely different ballgame if he doesn't. And Trump needs to get rid of him and get someone in who's going to actually deal with the the very thorny issues of reopening investigations into you know, the Clinton email, debacle. The vena laptop debacle and the list goes on and on on instead of just skating around it and not dealing with it. So rather than let's talk about, you know, our opinions on who Sessions is, let his actions dictate what we really understand. And it's back to reality. I you know, I get a lot of people getting in touch going, oh, well, what about this? And I don't deal in all this speculation. I'm not interested, frankly. I don't really care what that what one person is in relation to the grand scheme of things, it's the overall picture we need to see unfold. One person right. isn't going to decide the future of the US or any other nation for that matter. It's a collective approach and we have to see huge strides forward that start to tackle the real problems. The you know the real deep state cabal in the US. And thus far, it hasn't happened. Yes, there's mechanisms in place that suggest, you know, at some point it's possible that you can, you know, you know, implement an executive order, et cetera, et cetera, or unseal some in, indictments and get the ball rolling. But until that happens, it's all, it's a lot of hypothesis and it's a lot of speculation. And the one thing I don't have time for is dealing in speculation. I want to deal with the facts of things that we know are happening, what the implication of those are, and what it means in the broader, grander context. And the rest of it, well, I'll leave it to the people who want to speculate about it because that but it's not something I'm going to entertain because, frankly, from my perspective, it's a waste of time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Paul, um, speaking of uh, leaving Syria, we have uh, the entire Middle East debacle. We have the Syrian, you know, basically rumors right now uh, that are building up uh, a lot of vocal voices saying that, hey, you know what, Uh, certain bad actors are back in Syria and it looks like there's going to be another false flag. That's one side of it. And the other side, the continuous fomenting of the Yemen situation over there, where you know the supposed Houthi rebels, and I talked about this on, I believe, on Monday, uh, certain Houthi rebels were uh, supposedly u- using a drone that has doesn't even have the qu- the range whatsoever to go ahead. And uh, attack the Dubai International Airport, which I think is a total fake news because I can't find any verification of that. But the fact that this was disseminating out there uh, to create some sort of a pretext, some sort of a mood, some sort of a, uh, a, a mass hysteria, so to speak, to provoke some sort of a response is out there. So it seems like, again, the deep state is trying its best to entrench itself more into Syria, more into Yemen. And the broader Middle East.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I mean, if we deal with Syria first, of course, we spoke several months ago, practically, I think almost a week or two after the whole Duma false flag chemical weapons stuff. which notice the OPCW silence is deafening. Mm-hmm. It's like it never happened. Anyway, I digress slightly, but the point is very shortly after that attack, we said, Look, the, the likelihood of another false flag chemical weapons attack happening is pretty high. And there's no doubt there was plans mm. to have one in southern Syria, and it failed. And, of course, the U.S. capitulated over southern, uh, over southern Syria and the Russians, the Iranians. And, of course, the Assad forces took it with relative ease, and there was no objection, and everyone just got out of the way and let them get on with it. Now, of course, the thing with northern Syria is it's the last real stronghold, in inverted commas, that Daesh or whoever, you know, these so-called rebels hold. The, the rest of Syria is now largely free and clear. So that's all that's left. So it comes as no surprise that the White Helmets got moved out of southern Syria. And there's a lot of suggestions. that, And I've heard, you know, I can't confirm this, but I've heard, From several sources that they're resident again in northern Syria and it's all been staged for this false flag chemical weapons attack. Now, the thing that Moscow has done very intelligently, it came out and said immediately as soon as it was aware of something and telegraphed it publicly and said, look, we're aware of this. And they just put it out in the public space just to see what the reaction would be. But then they went a stage further, and Moscow actually briefed U.S. diplomats on the plans by what they term militants to stage this false flag chemical weapons attack. Ironically, of course, in Syria's Idlib province, which is in the northeast, and it's meant, of course, to frame Assad. Now, the Russian ambassador in Washington has sort of confirmed that he met with U.S. special representatives to Syria, And, of course, this is quite an unprecedented meeting. It happened earlier on in the week, and it was obviously confirmed by the U.S. State Department spokesperson. Was it Heather Nauer, I think her name is? So Mm -hmm. in the process, you know, um, the Russians were very pleased and said, look, it's great the U.S. has come forward at short notice, and, and, you know, they described the meeting as constructive and professional, which for the Russians to say that means it absolutely was. So we have to give a degree of credit to to the u.s you know side or the representative for syria to come forward and say okay yeah we're prepared to have this discussion and it seems as though it's gone pretty well now that doesn't mean of course the false flag chemical weapons attack doesn't happen and you know and then we tried to have this missile attack on 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 syria in the process but you know obviously russia was at pains to say look you know We've heard that you know Washington, IU and the French and the UK is is gearing up for more airstrikes in Syria. We know there's a US presence in in the Mediterranean, and and therefore the the argument would be, well, there's going to be this false flag chemical weapons attack because the US is saying, well, intelligence says it's a sad. Well, anyone within any scintilla of intelligence knows it's got nothing to do with Assad but that's beside the point. So Moscow asked Washington to provide the facts without delay to substantiate their allegations about uh, Assad. Of course there is no uh, intelligence because if there was any intelligence over Duma the OPCW would have long presented it and the West would have been foaming at the mouth with glee that they could frame Assad. Of course we know that's never going to happen. Now Of course, the other thing that the Russians have said is that, you know, they called them, they're now calling the White Helmets pseudo-humanitarian organizations, (laughs) which is absolutely true, of course. And they're saying, you know, they're they're involved in mounting another provocation. So now, of course, Russia, as ever, gathers very sort of cogent um, intelligence, and it's shared with the U.S. And these diplomats about the provocation, they say it's been... Prepared by Al Nusra Front. I mean, I don't know how many of these groups exist in 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 the Middle East, but and of course it's going to be in the in the province of Idlib. Yeah, and they said they were obviously plotting the attack, and then of course doing the usual. It was an atrocity by the Syrian regime. Bearing in mind. Assad controls 90 odd percent, 98 or 99, 98 percent, say, of, of Syria. He's got the support of all his people. Why would he launch a chemical weapon? So, I mean, that's the thing that's most shocking is that anybody who thinks about this for five milliseconds will work out. There's no logic for him to do it. Right. But they, the, the Russian intelligence is that detailed that they've actually said, you know, it's eight canisters of chlorine that's being delivered to a village. And there's this specially trained group of militants who've also arrived in the area to imitate a rescue operation to save the civilian victims. Well, I think that special trained group I must be referring to the white ailments, or maybe it is. Maybe there's another one. but And they want to use, you know, the, they're going to use child hostages in some stage. Insta- all the things we've seen in all these chemical weapons, alleged chemical weapons attacks before. And Moscow was at pains to say to these representatives, look, don't fall for this provocation. Because, you know, the outcome is going to be, if you do, you're going to say we're going to have this massive airstrike targeting Syria's military and civilian infrastructure. And, of course, that's illegal aggression and tantamount to a war crime. Right. Now, the issue, of course, is that um, in this process, that, of course, it comes on the back. And Moscow is not... uh, happy with bolton you know puffing out his chest saying the u.s will respond very strongly in the case of this chemical weapons attack by damascus and of course the russian defense ministry has said you know that's just a veiled threat to do that they're going to carry out another uh, you know strike in syria and the reason they're going to do it is because what is Syria and the Russians and likely the Iranians do? And they're about to launch an offensive in Idlib, which if it goes like it did in southern Syria, it's going to be over in a very short space of time. That's the end of the war. That's the end of this threat of Daesh, which is the, the faux reason why the U.S. is in Syria, because, oh, we're, we're fighting Daesh, and they never have done. Once that threat's gone, the U.S. have zero justification for being there. And, of course, the U.S. doesn't want to leave. The militants want this false flag chemical weapon attack because in the ensuing confusion. It gives them a chance to regroup. And you can guarantee the second it happens, and, the, and if the you know, U.S. coalition forces come in and launch another strike, as always happens, it's incredible it happens. And 10 seconds later, literally, these militants are on the offensive trying to launch you know, a, a counter-strike against uh, the, you know, the Assad forces and the Russians and the Iranians right and and i mean so this is all very very predictable um uh, behavior but the thing this time is which i think is most damning is the russians have come out and essentially said you know if you do this you can expect some uh, some counteroffensive from us so effectively in a very not even in a coded way russia's saying and that's what i said last time if the u.s does it again there's a risk of a hot war in them in Syria between the Russians and the US. And that is very, very likely to happen if the US goes ahead with this. And that will have been part of this meeting where they've have said, look, we know damn well it's got nothing to do with Assad. Don't even think about launching any sort of preemptive strike on because we're not going to be as generous as we were last time, just shooting your missiles out the sky and deactivating your missile launches in the Mediterranean Sea will do something far more serious in response. Mm-hmm. And and But again, the problem you have from a Trump perspective is, is if this chemical weapons attack goes ahead and Trump goes, well, actually, I'm not going to respond this time, then in the eyes of the, the risk is, in the eyes of the U.S. people, Oh, well, he's weak, he's ineffectual, he's not dealing with this nasty terrorist called Assad. In, in, you know, in Syria. And you know whether people, a lot of Trump supporters know how the world really functions and operates, the one thing is a lot of them don't understand the reality of what's going on in Syria. And if Trump backs off, it could damage his midterm election prospect. And I think this is precisely why the neocons are going, well, you know, not only have we got to quell the, the offensive of the Syrians because it could end the Syrian war and our justification for being there, But we've got a great opportunity where no matter what reservations Trump may have, we're in a position to say, well, we're going to have to press ahead because Trump can't take the risk of appearing weak and ineffectual. Because let's face it, he's damned whatever he does and he's damned if he doesn't from a Democrat perspective. But they will hammer to the American people. Look how weak and ineffectual your president is in dealing with this terrorist and uh, dictator called Assad. So yeah. the, the timing is, of course, as ever prescient, and that's precisely why it's happening when it's happening. Or will, it remains to be seen now if the US backs off. But if US uh, the Pentagon has any common sense, and people like Mattis warned last time about the US going in, launching uh, missile strikes in Duma, the risk and the risk is that they're going to say again, look, look, you know, uh, Trump. Uh, Mr. President, whatever you want to call him, you've got to really have to seriously think about the consequences of doing this. Because the risk is, if the Russians do respond asymmetrically to, to this attack, then equally, the, the consequences could be devastating for, the, for, for Trump. If the US comes out with a serious bloody nose and the world turns around and says, well, we're not surprised, but the, it will be a major shock. To the U.S. people, if if that happened, and we're not saying that is going to happen, but these are all the permutations that has to be going through the minds of Trump. So in a way, whatever he does, he's kind of damned if he does and damned if he doesn't, and and that's why he's being put over a barrel, and it's very very difficult for him to sort of maneuver his way around the the, the situation at hand. Now, with regards to Yemen, I mean, of course, the the UN Security Council, sorry, the UN human rights council is now starting to step up the ante there and saying that parties to the conflict in yemen namely participants in the saudi-led coalition again could be guilty of war crimes because there's this 40 page or so report which is by the group of the regional international called eminent experts on yemen which was commissioned by the u.n suggests that obviously the saudi-backed Yemeni government in exile and the Saudi led coalition, including the UAE, have committed acts that may subsequent to determination by an independent and competent court amount to international crimes. Well, the problem is we know that the U.S. has been supporting them and by implication. You can extend that to uh, to the U.S., just because they've been refueling planes isn't it is is you know in part an implication of involvement but also we know u.s special forces have been in yemen and the problem is the u.s needs and we said a long time ago needs to walk away from there because these coalition airstrikes as we know have killed civilians in residential areas there's been funerals weddings civilian boats medical facilities the list goes on and on and on and on and there's a known fact who knows how many thousands of civilians have been killed and injured whatever the official figures are it's going to be infinitely higher but what's really stoked i think the not so much obviously the writing of the report but the implication of it is because on the 9th of august a u.s made bomb was blew up a school bus killing children and obviously other people in the vicinity of the bus and And on the 23rd of August, this coalition airstrike killed 29 children and four women who were fleeing in a bus. So these kind of the ramifications of this um, are pretty serious. And what will be seen? Mattis has come out and said, you know, that uh, the U.S. support for Saudi in the conflict is conditional on the Saudi doing everything humanly possible to avoid any, you know, innocent loss of life well they should have thought about that a long time ago because we've seen in a two-week period recently two examples of where the crass irresponsibility of these coalition partners killing innocent civilians and that's just the tip of the iceberg now of course the democrats are going to are working hand in hand to try and maximize some political leverage out of that because they're saying well the Pentagon's not acted to curb its support for the coalition, even though lawmakers tried to force its hand. So the senators on the Democrat side have been working to block the sales of U.S. precision uh, missiles to the Gulf monarchies involved in the conflict. And they're saying, well, you know, the Defense Department can't give you an answer about how our assistance is making the war better in terms of civilian casualties. So they'll make as much... Political capital as they can out of this, in order, you know, once again because the midterms are coming up. So any other time they might not be quite so vocal, but there's a, you know, there's another senator in on the Democrat side, and he wants to introduce legislation to reject the sale of these precision-guided missiles to Saudi and the UAE. Now, you know, they're trying to put a similar resolution forward, um, which failed. I think it was back in March. But they're more confident they'll get the necessary votes now because of this 9th of August and 23rd of August, um, you know, bus bombings that have occurred. Now, of course, the situation is that, that the U.S. is inextricably tied to this and and needs to walk away. But as much as the Democrats are forcing forcing the political viewpoint that the U.S. needs to walk away from this, there are political ramifications if the Trump administration does this, because effectively they're leaving the saudis high and dry and the saudis and the u.s relationship is pretty weak and tenuous at the moment anyway so and then of course there's always going to be those on the neocon side of the fence will say well this is a very weak move by by trump and he's not upholding his end of the bargain with regards to allowing us to carte blanche do whatever we like in terms of foreign policy
0: well i mean we have also another thing brewing in the background in the Middle East. And I wouldn't say brewing. I would say in the land of adults, deals are being cut. The Chabahar port, uh, India, Iran, its new construction port of, that's going to run from Chabahar all the way through um, northern Iran, Pakistan, and into Afghanistan, and connecting all into the One Belt, One Road Initiative. But more different trade corridors will benefit them. What are your thoughts on that as well, Paul?
1: Well, this is, this is exactly the point. I mean, just to tie briefly in with India and Iran, we know that at the moment uh, Pompeo and Mattis are holding talks, or no, sorry, they're due to hold talks, I think, in the next week or so, right. with India's foreign ministry and their defence minister on. And this is dialogue to do with, obviously, them importing Iranian oil. They've already stated we're not going to go to zero, you know, and therefore we're going to have this discussion with with the the US with regards to our you know Iranian oil purchases, and therefore that's the purpose of the meeting because, of course, as we know, the US is pushing all countries to halt the oil imports from Iran after you know Trump left the JCPOA and ordered this reimposition of sanctions on Tehran. Now, India, which is Iran's top oil buyer after China, that shows the extent as so far not decided on any size of cut and wants to seek a waiver from the U.S. And as we know, Trump's threatened that anyone trading with Iran will not do business with America. Well, given China's standpoint, that means that all trade with China is going to stop if Trump's to be taken seriously, which in this regard, and China, I very much doubt it. But in a broader context, this is absolutely the case that, and I've said this for a long time, that nations will have meetings with the U.S., there'll be some agreement where and then the US walks out the door and and these nations then go, okay, so what are we actually going to do? And I think the reality is that's precisely what India will do with regards to its Iranian oil imports. They'll just say, well, we'll carry on doing what we want to do. Or China will say, do you know what, India will import extra oil and then we'll send it on to you in, in that regard. And I think that's a, a lot of how this horse trading will go on with regards to India because What's the U.S. going to do, sanction China? Right? It it just isn't going to happen. But in terms of, yeah, in terms of the Belt and Road Initiative, increasingly India is starting to integrate into that, and the North-South Corridor is a huge development. So, And, and you know, India realises the significant geostrategic position of Iran in the whole Belt and Road Initiative as a kind of conduit between, as Turkey is between, Effectively, Eurasia and um, the Far East and beyond. So it's very much in India's interest to realise the economic benefits of of working with nations like Iran. It has no desire to cease trading, and but I think the thing is, nations are now realising. Well, in the old days, we couldn't exactly just decide to to you know go against the the U.S. policy of sanctioning. They now realise. Well, Russia's managed to deal with it very eloquently. And the world's developed a lot since then in terms of other, you know, payment systems that and other mechanisms of barter trade, et cetera, which can circumvent the whole issue of of US sanctions and the US dollar. So they're quite happy to do that. And they realize now that there's a huge Eurasian backbone that now exists, which well, they're all very supportive of each other. And the US is now increasingly weakened in its ability to be effectual a, a against nations. I mean, in the end, what does the U.S. do? Says so to every nation on the planet, we're sanctioning you, and the, the world's going to turn around and go, fine. Effectively, you've sanctioned yourself. We'll just move away. We'll de-dollarize. We'll carry on doing the things we want to do when you've walked out the room. And the U.S. is doing thinks they're doing this from a position of strength. And in fact, it's a position of extreme weakness. And that's why nations such as India, who for a long time were sort of Always treading on the side of being very anti Belt Road Initiative, very anti uh, the Chinese, etc. Is now moving increasingly further away from the sphere of Washington and towards the rotation east and the Eurasian axis, the Belt Road Initiative. And of course, as we recall, India is a fully fledged member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. There, so it also has reasons for military purposes to to be part of that union and what is Iran, and Iran to all intents and purposes, while it notionally isn't. In reality, it's a full member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and they just don't make it official because it will create this or another geopolitical shitstorm with Washington in the process. So just let them be a member, but just don't tell the world it's happening. And that's another thing everyone's doing. They're just doing things. and not telling the, the world they're doing it. And Washington seems largely oblivious to the reality of what's going on.
0: Paul, Washington is completely oblivious to what's going on. They have no clue of what's going on uh, whatsoever, and uh, it's completely outside of their normal, chaotic, destructive daily routine. Paul, in other words, uh, uh, switching foot real quick from Iran and what's going on with how they're winning their little corridors with effective partnerships with other regional powers like India. And how it's cementing not only decentralizing from the U.S.-centric banking and financial systems, but de- de-dollarizing and uh, and developing, you know, uh, vast new industries. All these things that are happening right now is truly remarkable. Paul, you know, recently we just have the U.S.-Mexico trade deal, a new deal that's been put out. What are your thoughts on that? We see that Canada has been left out in the cold. They're sitting on the sidelines with, you know, on their hands. Now they want to negotiate. Uh, some, many are calling this a victory. Uh, some are deriding it as useless. Uh, what's your take?
1: <laughs> well, it's certainly not a victory. I mean, I mean, look, you know, Trump, Trump came out on Monday and said, you know, the U.S. and Mexico had reached this accord to revise key portions of of the NAFTA agreement and then they'd finalize it in a few days and he's going to jettison Canada from this trilateral trade pact if the country did not get on board quickly well if Canada's got any sense they're going to say well we're not going to get on board quickly because we want to understand the ramifications of this now we know we had this you know this uh, thing where Trump actually dials up the Mexican president and speaks to him it's some you know real PR stunt which designed to uh show the world well actually this is the reality of what's going on and i don't want the, the you know his version of the fake news as he calls it to uh distort the reality and now he promotes this preliminary agreement with mexico as a deal that's going to replace nafta and obviously and threaten to hit canada with auto tariffs if it didn't negotiate fairly so that's the the bog standard sort of uh trump approach now if you don't agree with this we'll just put tariffs on you anyway that's beside the point and he makes the point that, you know, that now it's we used to call it NAFTA and we're going to call it the United States-Mexico Trade Agreement. Fine. Now, whilst Trump might try to change the name, the agreement reached with Mexico is simply a very almost in, infinitesimally small revised NAFTA with some very small vague provisions surrounding the digital economy and, and automobiles and agriculture and labor unions. But the core of the trade pact, which allows American companies to operate in Mexico and Canada without tariffs, remains intact. So effectively, nothing changed. It, it's just more political, sort of midterm electioneering to, to give the impression that these big changes have come about with the with Mexico. And in fact, it absolutely hasn't. It it and the reality is, you know, staging phone calls may, may look all great from an electioneering perspective, but when you look at the detail, and of course, this has to be rubber-stamped in in uh, the Congress, etc. and the chances are someone's going to look at it and go, hang on, there's no difference. So for all this, you know, hot air about wanting to renegotiate the NAFTA agreement, all you've done is cut the, the Canadians out of the equation who rightly actually ought to have been because they're very intransigent and refuse to to negotiate anything or even to go to the negotiating table that's fine but effectively as we say to you know the 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 essence of the trade pact remains intact so what's actually changed very little and again okay from from a purely election nearing perspective you know it's good if people keep trump in the best bet that the u.s has currently is trump landslides the midterms and if that achieves that objective fine but in the grand scheme of things this is just largely for me irrelevant it doesn't really change anything and if anything there's probably there are some developments from the mexican side which which actually really all st- stick it pretty badly to the to the u.s in the process which is aside from the nafta agreement it's more how they you know implement trade agreements with other nations which will circumvent the u.s to a large extent and render them irrelevant to a certain degree with the trade that they currently conduct with the U.S. So, no, I don't see any great um, reason to be celebrating this particular um, as a triumph for the Trump administration. And the question now still comes back to the fact is who's financing the wall and when is it actually going to be built? Because there has been no building of of the wall. There was money allocated to repair existing sections, but the wall has never been built. And who's going to finance it? Because the one thing the Mexicans have said, the new president was adamant before he was elected. And Mexico aren't paying for it. The U.S. doesn't have the money to pay for it. So that's another impasse. And these are problems that, you know, Trump came out and says we want to build a wall. Fine. But he's not actually capable of, of achieving that objective because the U.S. simply doesn't have the finance to do it. And and the question is, who's going to finance it? And and this will kind of just probably go, go increasingly quiet, and it'll be like it was never discussed, because until the U.S. has the money to build it, it's not going to happen.
0: There, there are some sections of the wall uh, that is in construction. Um, that is, uh, th- I mean, there, there are sections where you can actually see the construction happening in the borders of Southern California, also in... Places like in Arizona, I've seen photographs of wall pictures going up. Uh, Texas residents that are on the border have uh, received uh, letters uh, from the federal government itself, uh, letting them know that the strategic significance of their property and uh, that there, there is uh, expected construction to take place soon. So I don't think it's fully yet I think this is uh I think a lot of this is a a battle that is going on and I think uh we'd have a better uh more clear picture of this after the midterms is what it looks like paul
1: yeah i mean i'm I'm not saying it's never going to happen but yeah. it's not you know to to any degree in any substance it's not happening there was actually there was a, the legislation passed to to finance the war was just merely to undertake repairs to existing sections that are already there, the nuts and bolts of it being built properly has is is, is is that thus far hasn't happened. You might be absolutely right, and after the midterms, is another one of those things that will will come to pass. But again, I'm only saying where we are currently, and and it may well change, and a lot of things may change after the midterms. But again, people need to be sort of realistic in their expectations and not expect this. Huge amounts of changes to happen, you know, post November and December and into January and February, or however long, you know, a lot of these changes come to pass. Yes, they things are going to happen, but it's again managing your own expectations about the reality of this, because for too long, people have been promised things are going to happen for the best part of this year, and you know, and re- in reality, nothing of any great substance has happened. And that is deeply damaging because people give up. They get despondent. They don't think anything's ever going to happen. But it will happen. It's just not going to happen how people have been or understood it is going to happen. But ultimately, there will be big changes. But a lot hinges on the the capability of Trump to be able to effectively govern in a post-midterm presidential way. And if, if he can do that, all well and good, if he can't, then then there are major questions as to what actually will happen in the US up till 2020. But I'm not suggesting for any minute. I'm pretty confident as things stand that Trump should be able to achieve the objective, but there are so many plates spinning that could derail that process. But I'll put it this way. I don't think there's anyone inside the US on any side of the fence who have any desire to see the the US economy implode and, and a 2008 scenario to happen At the moment, I don't think it serves anyone's interest for that to happen. So on that basis, you know, provided we get through, what, the next couple of months or so, then all things being equal, Trump should achieve his objectives. And then after that, I think we'll start to see some major changes happening. But prior to that, I'll never say never, but I'd be very surprised to see anything of any significant substance with regards to, you know, things that are going to drain the swamp i think it would be tantamount to political suicide at this point to start slinging those kind of arrows around a matter of two months before the midterms because it it undoubtedly will either end up being damaging to trump or it'll be buried and and seen as just oh it's just a you know political rhetoric to try and get support for trump it will lose its momentum it needs to happen when trump has the mandate via achieving his objectives in the midterms to to implement things that most certainly need to be implemented. But it remains to be seen what happens in in that regard. But time will tell. We've only got a couple of months or so before the realization of that happens.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Paul, we have uh, Wells Fraudel. Wells Fraudel, one of the favorite banks over here, the American Deutsche Bank, Wells Fraudel. Uh, which was the uh, uh, you know d- which was created a damn near hundred years ago. Now they're saying that they're reestablishing themselves in 2018, trying to win back people's trust. Wells Fargo that opens up uh, for every every new client that opens up a checking account, they open up uh, 20 or 30 checking accounts without the client even knowing. Um, Wells Fargo, the famous Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo that's involved in not only the mortgage fraud that's in this country and the mortgage-backed securities and the subprime crisis. Wells Frado that was involved in drug and narco-trafficking and money laundering. Wells Frado seems like it's going to go under, Paul. What is your take on that? And how does Wells Frado connect with all the other shenanigan criminal banks that we have here, these zombie institutions?
1: Well, of course, the entire Western banking system was effectively lassoed together after 2008 by design, which is very deeply damaging in the event of one of them going down, they all go down. And you make the point in Europe, you know, Deutsche Bank's the thing that always gets beaten with the stick and always ends up having investigation. There's paid numerous fines when a lot of banks are doing effectively the same things and a blind eye's turn to them. And Wells Fargo seems to be the whipping of the banks in the US in the process but in, in reality the entire banking system as we know is, is corrupt beyond any conceivable imagination we may have. It, I mean it is the age-old question which bank if there is a scenario where one of the banks goes down which one, which one of the major banks is going to go down and everyone always focuses on Deutsche Bank we've had numerous false dawns where Deutsche Bank's on the verge of collapse it's CDS spikes it produces some figures and they're absolutely awful and yet it keeps surviving and carrying on. Well, the reason it carries on is because like all the other banks, there's a lot of very sort of, shall we say unsavory business activities gone on within these banks and that has to be hidden and, and no one need, they don't want anyone to find out about this. So for the time being, you know, the, the, the madness goes on and this is again, the point, as long as the dollar exists, you can just print print uh, your money to into oblivion just to, to, to bail out banks, and we know for a fact that, you know, all this idea, well, we bailed all the banks out in 2008, that was the end of it. Well, the bank bailouts have continued to the tune of who knows how many trillions and trillions of dollars. It's worth pointing out there's a lot of talk about all the missing 21 trillion or whatever it is in the U.S. I'm not doubting the money has gone missing. The question is, did the money ever really exist in the first place? Or is it all just printed money? In which case, if that gets found, you put a load of uh, printed money back into the U.S. economy, what would that's going to create hyperinflation? I'm not saying that's the case, but the, the idea that you, you find all this money and it resolves the U.S.'s financial difficulties is, for me, is just a step too far. I don't see it ever achieving those objectives. But having said that, coming back to the point of the banks... The issue is that at some point the risk is one of them is going to capitulate. And it's probably far less likely to be the ones that everyone thinks it's going to be, and it might more likely than not. For example, you know, we, we know there's problems in the Italian banking system. Now, the risk, of course, is being Eurozone's third largest economy, that if something happens in Italy, then the contagion effect will go through France and into Germany and in the process then that becomes the contagion effect that takes down Western banks, including those in the U S. So it's more likely to be an innocuous situation that that causes that contagion effect. But without a doubt, they just use banks like uh, Wells and also Deutsche Bank. They're kind of just the whipping boys. So, you know, everyone thinks, well, you know, there's these banks that are doing all these things they shouldn't be doing, but you know, we're being really hard on them. We keep finding them. We keep, producing legislation against them and everyone thinks then that the banking system's clean and is being dealt with but it's just a gigantic smokescreen. it doesn't mean of course that maybe wells could be the trigger point or maybe deutsche could be the trigger point but there's been a lot of talk about this for the last two or three years or longer and each time it never comes to fruition but of course at some point the risk is a contagion effect may happen that simply no one's able to control and of course that's exactly what led to the whole 2008 financial crisis when they all got caught with their trousers down and and literally they were hours away from the entire financial system collapsing in the west and of course they prevented it for the reasons we know but the, the risk of that happening again is something that we shouldn't dismiss and once again you know a lot of people think historically september october i mean we're coming up nearly to the 10th anniversary of Lehman, which of course as we know, was sacrificed to to preserve the integrity of, of the likes of Goldman's, et cetera. And, but at this time, they can't do that. They can't sacrifice a bank and save the rest of them. It's just not possible to do that anymore. Those days have long since gone. So they're going to have to keep this going as long as they can. Hence the idea of preserving the the notion of how strong the dollar is and in the process convincing everyone just how weak precious metals are. And because that's the whole point, they don't want people to invest in real money. They want people to to prop up a paper Ponzi scheme that's been going for decades and is now on its last legs. And it comes back to the point, I still get people getting in touch going, no, they, you know everything's going to be fine. We're going to get rid of the cabal and the US dollar's going to survive. Well, those two things can't happen. You either get rid of both of them, but you can't keep one of them because the cabal completely functions on having... ability to have the world's reserve currency and print dollars into oblivion until you remove that they can carry on doing precisely what they're doing that's why the dollarization and eventually you decapitate the dollar and when no one uh, will take dollar as payment then they can print as many dollars as they like but no one's going to accept the money when they can't accept the money it's game over but until that happens nothing changes so i'm sorry (laughs) for reiterating this point but there is no way, you know, that you can have a world's reserve currency and it just keeps going. History proves every single currency ends up collapsing. The difference is the ones in the past didn't have QE and zero interest rate policy and these massive debt burden through direct debt and then, of course, unfunded liabilities, et cetera, et cetera. There these problems didn't exist. And a financial system that's totally wrecked just to, to add, you know, you know, petrol on that fire. So that's a reality. It has to go. Trump knows this, but I don't think many people in Washington know this, but I think he most certainly knows that has got to happen. And he knows that he's going to be the sitting president in all likelihood where the dollar dies. But he's prepared to do that because he knows in the long run, it's the only way to end the madness, which is a scourge of the US and Western nations and beyond for longer than any of us care to remember. And for that, he deserves enormous credit because he's prepared to say, you know what, I could have just sat on the golf course for the rest of my life, and who cares, I'm a rich man, it would never have affected me. But no, he said, I'm prepared to do the thing that, you know, in many ways I think eventually he'll be regarded as being a great president if he achieves his objectives, but in the short term, he's likely to be frowned upon as someone who caused the collapse of the U.S. dollar, but it's got nothing to do with him, As we know, the U.S. dollar is already dead and buried and was since 2008 which is precisely why the financial crisis happened and all they've spent the last 10 years doing is trying to delay the inevitable date with destiny and people have got frustrated because too many people have said well the collapse is going to happen today no it's going to happen in 2012 13 14 and whatever and of course it hasn't happened and the price of gold and silver is going to go through the roof in 2011 and 12 and 13 and 14 and and the one thing i've never done is put a date on anything because it's it will happen when it happens it's not date driven but it's going that's, to happen yeah, at some paul, point well that
0: that's because you you don't have a a, a a crystal ball that's what it is paul that's the problem. <laughs> well, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: you see i know some guys out there they've actually went out and they spent quite a quite 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 some money on their crystal balls yeah i'm sure you've probably heard that uh Next Tuesday around 1 p.m., gold will be repriced to seventy thousand dollars an ounce. Did you did you did you miss that news, Paul? Because I caught it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I obviously was asleep at the whale of that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, all jokes aside, you know, that, this is the problem. It's, and it and what it's done in the process is again, it's managing expectations. You know, I wouldn't on the funniest
0: I... thing is, Paul. If you and I came out with dates every week, you know, you we would have a massive audience.
1: Yeah, but g- exactly, you know, that's the sad it part. It is the if- sad
0: part. Uh, we're living in a generation and in a time that people love scams. They love being lied to. It's incredible to witnesses. I've never seen a generation like this.
1: And the, the problem is, it's like, at the end of the day, the Cold Stone reality and brutal, harsh facts is what everyone needs because it's the only way you can, in any way, shape, or form, navigate your way around what's coming. Mm-hmm. And, it, and the fact of putting dates on things implies, I'm sorry, that people aren't aware of the fact there is no date. I don't, I don't make this thing of an event-driven scenario just because it sounds like a great thing to say. That's exactly what's happening. Right. And at some point, there's going to be an innocuous event that will seem absolutely meaningless, and that will be the time... When the tipping point happens with regards to the price of gold and silver, whatever it goes through. and I don't really, you know, care. I'm not going to put figures on it because it's irrelevant. But at some point, that event will happen. But it's an event; it's not a time-driven thing. Which is, and this is why a lot of people who put that you know, put their neck on the line and stick dates on things are actually by by putting a date on it, they've they've actually you know in the process got people annoyed because they say well it's never happened and now it's got to the point where people go well it's never going to happen yeah. and now we have the the idea that dollars going to survive and you know it doesn't matter because gold and silver is irrelevant well I'm sorry it's absolutely not the case and you're absolutely right B. if we if we just started to be very sensationalistic and and talk about these things like oh you know all these amazing things are happening and we, yeah, yeah, we'd have you know, a myriad of people subscribing and listening. But the question is, and I always come back to it, for all these comments that that these people come out with, ask yourself what has ever actually happened. Correct. Because that's what you judge someone by, is by why they've said these things and then it's happened. Or they've said a whole bunch of things and it never happens. I mean, there comes a point when you have to say, why am I hanging on to listening to people who keep promising all these things and it, and then it never happens? I mean, is that not the basis of why we do this? To well, It's not there to say, I know better than anyone else. Absolutely not. But the criteria by which we should be judged is what we say, does it happen? Does it have validity? Does it point towards what's happening? And if it does, then people should say, okay, then... These are the people we need to be listening to. All the people who make all these grandiose statements about things that are going to happen this week, next week, and next month, or whenever, and they never happen. How many times do you go? Well, I'm just going to keep giving them the benefit of the doubt. If if you or I did that, V, we'd get absolutely slaughtered. I would have people unsubscribing telling me I was talking a load of rubbish. And why was I doing this? And that is the problem we experience. And in the process, the work we're all trying to do in that regard, and it's not just you know us, there's lots of other great people out there doing the same thing, it damages our credibility to get the, the news out because we all get branded as being conspiracy theorists and you know you're just part of that group of people. Well, we're not part of that group of people because we stand up to try and discuss realistic and real events that are happening right. and give an explanation and understanding of what that actually means. Finding those innocuous little things that, that, you know, at some point are going to be a major tipping point in this event-driven scenario, and that's what people need to understand and know. And that's what we're always striving to understand and know and to be able to say that, you know, these are the things that are coming up. But what most certainly will happen, it's going to be a very innocuous thing one day that's going to be a very big tipping point, and the likelihood is it will happen. And then a a week or two later, something major will happen as a result of it. And that's why, in in many ways, I think that mirrors probably the reality of how many things will unfold. It's not going to be this in-your-face attitude that, oh, there's all these major things going to happen. And the other thing is broken clocks are always right twice a day. Right. so just because someone says these major things are going to happen even though they've said it for months and months and months and it's never happened what are they going to do when it happens go see we told you it happened well yeah broken clocks are right twice a day that proves nothing the reality is if we say you know this event means this is going to happen we can't say exactly when but you, as a result of this you will see these these things happen you're yeah. going to see i mean back in 2030 my view on on the whole Belt and Road Initiative or when the birth of it was, this is the beginning of the death of the dollar. It's a long process, but this is the starting point. And these are the things you're going to see in the next few years. That's exactly what's happened. That is what people need to, the information they need to acquire, not, you know, some sensationalistic clickbait headline that gets everyone to go and view it. And the reality is there's no substance to it. Right, And, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't help anyone in the process of understanding the reality of what's going on.
0: Oh, agreed. Uh, wholeheartedly, one thousand percent correct. Now, if you and I had a uh, some sort of a shtick, Paul, like for instance, like maybe you, perhaps you're psychic, and uh, I'm actually uh, a uh, a descended from an alien space race from the planet Pluto, <laughs> 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 and, then, and we had an uh, a, an internet newsletter, we'd make a killing, Paul. We'd make a killing, but that's not what this is Lord. all about. <laughs>
1: <laughs> do you know what? There's I could I could say a whole bunch of things yeah. today mm. and next week and going forward, and and and, and there's uh, suddenly we'd have a whole bunch of new people going. Oh wow, I'm really interested in this. Oh yeah. But do you know why I won't do it? Because it lacks integrity. Exactly. It lacks exactly what we're here to do. And I want to stand up in the future and go. Do you know what? I did my best to understand what was going on, to talk to the people I know to come to an understanding and, and, and an analysis of what's happening and get the facts out there and get the, the true picture of what's happening. So at least I don't want to look back in the future and go, do you know what? I told all these wonderful stories, mm-hmm. and it made – and, you know, that's the other thing. That's why you and I don't want anyone to know who we are. We're not interested. I don't want to be some celebrity. There's too many people in the alternative media who are desperate to be celebrity oh, right, and to absolutely. have all these people fawning over them and going, oh, look how wonderful you are. I'll be glad in the future when – at whatever point we don't do this anymore. Right. And to walk down the street and no one has a clue who I am, that that's exactly what it should be about. It should be about, it's not about us, it's about the facts. And the more we're in the way of the facts by being being, being some weird celebrity in this process, that's damaging. It's not about us. So I'm that's why I'm anonymous. I'm not anonymous, like some people think, because I'm trying to hide something. I just don't want to be known. I'm not interested. I don't want in the future anyone to go, oh, oh yeah, you're that guy, and you walk down the street and people
0: recognize you exactly because it's, no, it's of no interest. It's no, I'm, I'm it's, the same way, man. I've uh, yeah, I've I've flown around the world uh, to meet with people and clients on various different projects and investments and you know things of that sort. I'll meet anybody face to face. That doesn't bother me, but there's no reason for me to be out there and you know. And, and what cause I'm not doing this for the notoriety, like, you know, one of the things people say, hey, man, you, you know, you'd you have like, you know, 50,000, 60,000, 100,000 subs by now. I'll just show your face, do fancy videos. No, this is this is an intellectual. This is why, you know, we're running here like what you and I do is completely auditory. And it's auditory in the sense that, you know, you know what, this is something for you to absorb with your mind. This is not entertainment, you know. So, <laughs>
1: well, yeah, absolutely. You, you made a brilliant word there. It's not entertainment, right. and there's too many people in the alternative media. They just—it's just entertainment. It's—you it, know—it instead of switching on to some show on mainstream media, switch on to us, and you can be entertained that way. And that's what it is. Exactly. And and there's no room in the alternative media for entertainment that's that's issue that's portrayed as being based in fact, yep, because it's exactly. raising people's ob- you know, obj- uh, or it's raising people's expectations as to what is coming Absolutely. and the reality. And right. if you want to get rid of the cabal that's controlled the world <laughs> and is, and increasingly, of course, no longer does. You know, it's going to take one hell of a lot of eggs to be smashed to make a decent omelet to resolve the problem. And you can't have this idea that this utopian belief that it all changes tomorrow, and that's the end of it, because yeah. they, they, the control mechanism. Is so vast. It's what I use the analogy, it's a billion pieces of string all interwoven in such a way that the only way you can resolve it is to pick each one of them individually. And that takes a hell of a lot of time and a lot of patience and a lot of understanding. And that's what's going to happen. So as much as there's big events that will happen at some point, to get through this entire process, it's going to take a number of years till we get out the other side and the world's completely changed because you can't transition western nations from one mindset and one belief mechanism and and say to them oh by the way that's not true and this is what we're changing it to they're not going to they're not going to be that accepting of it we always forget we always look at our own position and go well we're accepting of it but we're in the minority the majority are going to take a lot of time to accept it and to be assimilated into a new world however that unfolds so that's the other expectation i mean agree you may argue how long that's going to take i think we're talking a number of years I, i certainly don't see it being completed for as things stand and i will put a time scale on this i think you're talking four or five years before we've actually completely done everything that needs to be done and everything's in place and the world's in a nice happy sort of medium where nations are getting on people are cooperating the world's you know had it reached some sort of equilibrium there's going to be an awful lot of Relative chaos and and issues of trying to resolve internal problems within nations exactly. and redevelop and recalibrate relations. Exactly, but it doesn't Paul, mean we, we. You know, it's a disaster for the next five years. Absolutely not. Absolutely,
0: Paul. Thank you for being on, man. I have to run. I actually have a, a scheduled call to be on right about now, folks. Check out his website, theseriousreport.com. Subscribe uh, to the membership for less than the price of a Starbucks latte per month you can get the play-by-play of the entire geopolitical landscape again theseriousreport.com and also subscribe like comment and share on this channel uh so we can uh grow as well paul thank you so much for being on sir
1: it's a pleasure
0: and we'll catch you next week definitely man i gotta run so we'll talk soon yeah take yeah take care cheers bye